It's more an internal process than. Yeah, and I think. Okay. I think it's very good. Yeah, that's very good because it may mean that you have something extremely important, you know, inside you. Yeah, maybe because I haven't felt this before. You know, I just haven't. In fact, um, you know, there's always been this. The dynamic, as I know it, is that you know the world wants me to do this. And I feel much more comfortable once I reach my understanding and I feel complete for myself to not do what the world wants me to do, you know, to not like perform <laughs> on stage. But, um, but this is, yeah, <laughs> but this is um, a little bit like, um, yeah. It's big, yeah. It's bigger than myself. So yeah, maybe you're. Maybe that's a good way to think about it. That's a that's well, a good so, way to think about it. So mm. I'm very proud of you, and uh, will be and proud of I, me when I finish. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I'm proud of you because uh, you're listening to that voice. Yeah. And that's all we can do. Uh, all we can do is our best. Yeah. Who knows? Intoxication and intercourse is happening right now because I am intoxicated by you got it we're having intellectual <laughs> intellectual intercourse <laughs> yeah. all right let me start uh, this thing that sounds oh. like a good point welcome to speak sex I'm your host Eve Eurydice and today's guest is uh, William T. Volman he is a writer of well he will correct me but something like 20 books uh, of many thousand words each, uh, and each book pretty close to a masterpiece. Um, he's a writer's writer, and uh, we're going to talk about, um, well, intellectual intercourse. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> right? <laughs> Why not? I mean, we're trying to celebrate Valentine's Day. Exactly, we? yeah. <laughs> so thanks for coming on the podcast, Bill. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Eurydice. I really appreciate it. And um, I've always admired you and wanted to be um, a closer friend to you. And so I feel very pleased to have a nice talk with you now. Mm, yeah, likewise. It's uh, it's, it's just the same. Um, Thank you. I, I think that, uh, well, we've known each other 
not daily, but we've known each other for a long span of time. I don't know what, 30 years, something like that. So um, that that feels good. <laughs> yeah, I would say, like, since the, the late Jurassic period, I can remember <laughs> seeing some dinosaurs and ferns. Um, it was... It was actually a long time before fire was invented. And then um, um, the creation of fire, I think, came about uh, because you're such a hot chick. <laughs> yeah, so prehistoric times until now, it's a little <laughs> it's a stretch. Yeah, so we've known each yeah. other for yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but we are in this uh, 2022, <laughs> believe it or not. And so I want to discuss with you, um, I guess, you know, manhood and eroticism, uh, the inner feminine, the inner masculine, um, the way we we have and haven't separated sex from procreation, <laughs> um, the difference between, you know, sex and for love, sex uh, for pay, um, sex for pleasure, um, you know, it, it all feels uh, to the people out there a bit muddled. And I know that for you, as for me, uh, you know, creativity and writing is, is a form of transgression, just as, you know, sex is, and it's also a form of transformation, right? Very true. Mm, yeah. Anyway, so yeah, tell tell us what whatever... Um, you want on this topic? <laughs> well, I will do my best, Eurydice. Um, let's see. Um, well, on the subject of the inner feminine and mm-hmm. the inner masculine, mm-hmm. um, I remember uh, when I was still an adolescent and I started um, reading some of the work of Carl Jung and um, I'm still not sure uh, how much of Jung I agree with, but he's really, really inspiring. And, um, you know, most of the things that um, psychoanalysts propose um, are things that cannot be proved. Um, but... Um, I guess you can talk about induction. You know, someone says, well, this is a certain kind of psychic or emotional process, and everybody seems to go through this, and you can't prove or disprove that, but you can read it and say, oh, yeah, now when I hear this, I think that I go through this. So it seems to be true. And... um, One of the things that really fascinated me when I first started reading Jung was the idea of the anima and the animus. And for those who are listening who maybe have not studied those, the anima is the female component inside of a man. And the animus, you know, of course, is the male component inside of a woman. And um, I was brought up um, in a very traditional family, you know, in which, uh, you know, boys didn't cry. Um, and, uh, when I'd go to the barber, you know, I'd get a crew cut and he would call me killer, 
Those were the days. <laughs> um, and um, so the idea uh, um, that there was some sort of um, female inside me was quite strange at first. And then the more I thought about it, um, the more I started thinking um, it's very, very uh, useful and interesting. And also, um, wouldn't it be nice if, um, if in um, heterosexual attraction, at least, it's not just a case of opposites attract, you know, uh, um, mm-hmm. somebody with a cock mm-hmm. and somebody with a cunt, and mm-hmm. that's all it is. Mm-hmm. But um, but if um, there was some sort of um, reaching toward um, toward understanding, toward feeling what the other person feels, and mm-hmm. uh, how uh, could I ever hope to know what it's like to be a woman without empathy, without some feeling that I could imagine myself mm-hmm. at least some way mm-hmm. as a woman and that if I could do that it seems to me that I would be a better man a more loving man uh, more able to uh, to please women and understand them and be a lover and a friend um, so um, when I was small when I was nine years old um, my six-year-old sister drowned uh, in a pond, um, and it was uh, it was partly my fault. You know, I was supposed to be babysitting her, and I didn't do a good job. Yeah, and, well, it uh, wasn't your fault, but anyway, it was perceived, I'm sure, by your by your yeah, that, innocent psyche. Right. Yeah, it was clearly yeah. not your fault. You were a child. <laughs> You're not that adult. Uh, um, I'm, I'm sure it was no one's fault, but if there's well, ever innocence, the innocence is with the child. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Um, well, um, one of the things that Jung talks about is active imagination. Mm-hmm. That you um, you try to get in touch with some other form of yourself <clears throat> and speak to that person and listen. And there have been times in which mm. I felt really really sad and lonely and damaged and so when i was in my 30s and 40s i thought well why not um you know why not uh talk to the the little bill inside me you know who's suffering and maybe i could tell him something to make him feel better or maybe i could um I could come back from it learning something from him that makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. And my, my parents used to keep a picture of Julie and me, you know, and I had a mm-hmm. little crew card and mm-hmm. she was next to me. And so I started trying to talk to the little boy with the crew cut. And instead, uh, quite often I would see, um, um, you know, a little, a sad little girl with brown hair, you know, who was my sister. And sometimes, um, you know, she was all wet and covered with mud. 
you know, dead, pulled out of the bottom of the pool. And mm-hmm. she was she was really, really sad and really cold and wet and lonely. And And I realized that when I was talking to her, I was talking to some version of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in a slightly different, I think, manifestation of the same thing, um, um, I realized that um, the only kind of porn that I really like to watch is lesbian porn. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really interested um, in uh, in seeing a male body because um, I'm sufficiently drawn to women that um, I not only like to to uh, to mm-hmm. be attracted to one, but occasionally mm-hmm. to be one or to imagine myself as one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, I really think that um, both of these both of these phenomena basically are are aspects of my anima, and that um, since we're talking about love and sexuality and Valentine's Day, I feel that um, um, focusing on my anima as well as my male persona um, um, is very healthy for me and, and helps me to to love better. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So what do you think? Well, I totally, first of all, I totally agree with it in general, like for the entire male population. <laughs> um, I think that we would all be better, happier people if, you know, all men felt at ease, you know, wearing makeup or women's clothes or without having to necessarily, um, I mean, I know that you you did take a, a name, right, Dolores, and you wrote a book yeah. or did, yeah, or did some uh, other work, photography, I think. Um, so you actually like created an, an, uh, your, your feminine as an alternate um, self in the world. But I, to begin with, I just feel very drawn to men who are, you know, free enough and comfortable enough to to try all kinds of like expressions, you know, to give themselves the the right, <laughs> you know, to not be so limited by the patriarchy, you know, by by uh, what you know the 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 censorship of their right. job in in this you know kind of like very hierarchic and and narrow minded culture. Um, so, like in in college, like when I was you know sixteen or seventeen, uh, I dated like you know the only guy in school who would change his hair color and would wear like a little skirt over his you know pants. Because <laughs> oh, um, I always yeah, and uh, I I'm still you know I'm I'm always uh, attracted and interested in people who have some sort of like natural androgynous tendencies and I don't mean physically like I don't mean not I don't at all mean (laughs) um uh you know like the way that their body looks what what I mean is the way that they you know allow their body to be in the world um and uh yeah I think that the liberation of men is long overdue so my opinion is that (laughs) um 
you know, the, the liberation of women has, um, has put aside, you know, what, what should be the kind of like attendant liberation of men from the patriarchy. And yeah, finding your inner feminine like that and giving her voice and, and, um, well, you have given her an identity, I think it works for, you know, in that, for that cause. Um, well, you know, one thing I would like to ask you is, um, well, you remember um, in the symposium, you know, when Socrates imagines a time uh, in which um, everybody was a hermaphrodite, and then um, mm. uh, people were separated mm-hmm. into male and female, and so part of um, of attraction and desire Mm-hmm. is longing for that other part of you. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, um, is that um, um, not just, you know, interesting and um, and partially true, but is it uh, completely true, uh, or is there something else in there? Um, um, I tend to think that... Um, that love, attraction, whatever, um, mm-hmm. is a combination of similarity and difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you have very, very strong political opinions, for instance, then you might um, choose your lover uh, based on um, similar opinions. You might not be able to stand someone with different opinions. But on the other hand, um, you don't want somebody who is um, exactly like you in every way. And of course, it would be impossible uh, to find somebody like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, it's a very, very, really an infinitely beguiling mystery as to um, how and why it works, you know, what's the, what's the magic recipe for the amount of similarity and difference that we want mm. um, and that we can provide to others. What mm. do you think? Um, well, I do think that um, the perfect, let's say they, you know, as close to perfect as can be. The perfect match is the match of opposites. Uh, and that the reason that that is rare is that it requires more trust than average, right? So when you are with someone who is not your like, um, you have to take a greater leap of faith and sustain it in the trust that we together are complete, um, and I- I- even though you're not in the in the in the consciousness of your of your mate of your partner, so and I and I think that um, that kind of trust has been corroded um, in our time even more than it was in Plato's time, because we're I- even more uh, focused on the individual uh, rather than the you know, cooperative or the collective. So 
um, you know, we forget that all of our knowledge is collective. That you know, we can only know ourselves through others. We forget all that, <laughs> and we kind of like right. live on this, you know, vain assumption that you know we're a monad, <laughs> which yeah. makes it harder to really, you know, become one with uh, with each other. Um, what and, do you think it would be ahead. like, Eurydice, to become one? <laughs> What do I think it would be like in, um, in emotionally or per- perfectly one? Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, emotionally, spiritually. I mean, we've—I'm uh, sure you know—we've gotten close. Maybe we've achieved it, and in which case, you could just say, "What is it like for you?" Um, I have not. Uh, I, you know, I have not achieved it. No, <laughs> I think that I have. Ephemeral, you know, I have gone through periods of of being in that state, and it's um, extraordinary. Um, it's just, uh, you know, again, it, it it's a freedom from the self, which is extraordinary, um, and it's a, you know, it's it's all these things that, you know, I mean. That we talk about when we talk about love, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so, so you know, being able to be uh, to be complete, and yet you know, be always kind of um, uh, be be complete, but not be satisfied, right? Be complete, but always be in process, and kind of like right on the verge of of more you know be complete and yet be becoming uh becoming but not on your own so you you're not in control of it right i think that right. that's that's that um that state um but i think that what gets in the way of it is really our culture i mean in my case anyway in my case what has got in the way of keeping this up, let's say, for years, has inevitably been culture, meaning um, cultural expectations, let's say, uh, you know, marriage or the family of either partner, um, you know, the definitions of roles, um, you know, trying to fit something extraordinary into very ordinary roles and parts and then fit it into... Uh, the society, the way it's built, um, kind of like hurt, damages, you know, damages that connection. It creates cracks. And then, of course, we, you know, if if we apply on on that kind of like sublime, let's say, you know, erotic union, if we apply um, all the pedestrian rules of our engagement, you know, like um, what is monogamy, um, what is um, polyamory? What, what you know, the, the endless kind of like you know uh, rules of our engagement retroactively, you know, without having made like a clear agreement before, <laughs> before you you take the leap of faith, uh, that also damages it. You know, it creates doubts. It feeds these sense. doubts. Yeah. Um, can you tell me more? <laughs> Tell you more. Um, what's the question? Well, um, what would that leap of faith 
mean to you? How would you describe it, and how would you know um, when it's appropriate? Um, well, again, you know, I think that it defies words, so, you know, <laughs> it's not something that's easy to talk about because you know it uh, when you're in it, and when you're in it, you are happy. You are just inexplicably and almost, you know, dumbfoundedly happy. And you, you know, you're happy the whole time. That's that, that, you know, sense of absolute satisfaction just being next or in the vicinity of the partner who's, who should be your partner. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, if, if that's the case, Eurydice, then it may be that there's no such thing as what people dismissively call mere infatuation. That when you're infatuated, in fact, um, that's when um, you are taking or even being carried away on that leap of faith. And that um, all we can say is that some infatuations last longer than others. And... um, and it's not necessarily us, um, you know, it, it might be the other person or something else um, that causes this particular love to fail or dwindle away. And it might even be, you know, in, you know, 10 minutes or as opposed to maybe <laughs> one year as opposed to 10 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh-huh. Well, infatuation, favorite, uh, infatuation is like the spark. Uh, Go ahead. This yeah. great Japanese uh, woman, Ono no Komachi, and mm-hmm. one of her little poems goes something like, um, you know, um, oh, more fragile than a dewdrop, you know, is the flower of a lover's mind. And so um, you can make that... Um, that leap of faith, um, and then the other person can suddenly and mysteriously fall out of love with you. Um, and that makes the whole thing so interesting. Um, it means that um, we can't uh, uh, we we can't expect necessarily. Um, to achieve what we are hoping to achieve in our desire, that doesn't make the desire any less real mm-hmm. uh, or profound or true. Mm-hmm. Um, it just means that since love requires at least two people, mm-hmm. um, um, we can't always expect results. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I tend to blame the construct. I, d- I tend to blame the past six, seven thousand years <laughs> of civilization, you know, of like patri civilization, which um, is, you know, based on a on a false consciousness, in my opinion. Um, and so, you know, fitting a natural love in this cultural prison, so to speak, in my in in my view, is the main problem. And I, yeah, I do not really blame, you know, each one of us. I, I, you know, because I think that we're all um, crippled 
by our, you know, upbringing, by our sense of logic, <laughs> by, well, our st sentence structure, <laughs> you know, our, our, you know, our very understanding of what's going on. Um, we, we tend to reverse the natural, you know, we, within our culture. So... Um, yeah, I understand. I think <clears throat> you're right. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, but I do think that, you know, since we uh, kind of like separated sex from procreation in the 70s, I guess, around, uh, you know, after World War II, slowly, <laughs> um, you know, the same scientists, who, I guess, the type, of, the type of mind, you know, who created the nuclear bomb, then, uh, you know, created like artificial insemination and... Um, paternity tests, you know, birth control, all of that, right? That's so right. suddenly we had the sexual revolution, but the sexual revolution came because, um, you know, there was, for the first time in human history, um, a way to, you know, find paternity and, and, you know, control procreation without having to basically, like, uh, imprison right the 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 womb you know the the the, the uterus <laughs> for the for the span of its like fertility years <laughs> um yeah you are you are so right and i always thought that um you know the wide dissemination of the pill and condoms and ieds and all those things um um was such a, a boon for women and um and of course uh such a relief for men with integrity. You know, before mm -hmm. then, you could have a man without integrity who could promise a woman he was going to marry her, and then he could get her pregnant, and then he could deny paternity, and she was ruined. Um, it was really disgusting. Um, and now, um, um, you know, a woman doesn't have to worry about getting pregnant if she doesn't want to. Um, mm -hmm. I'm always happy, you know, to see, um, ladies, um, taking their, their sexuality in their own hands. I remember, uh, one, um, prostitute, um, I wanted to photograph, um, in, uh, in Pakistan, in this very, very conservative Muslim area, mm. um, where all the women wore burqas. And so um, I asked my rickshaw driver if I could photograph one. So he went to this one place, and a woman came out. Um, you couldn't tell whether she was old or young or pretty. You couldn't even see her hands. Um, and she came up to the rickshaw, and I paid her some money to take her picture there. And already, um, you know, there were men coming toward us, running, you know, throwing bricks and stones and so forth. And she ran into this apartment building. And um, um, and then there was nothing that these men could do because the next time any woman came out of that apartment building, it could have been her or it could have been anybody else. She could have come right out a second later and they couldn't have touched her. And I thought... It was great to see her, um, you know, using um, the constriction, 
put on yeah, her by that culture right. um, to make herself safe. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, Eurydice, when you um, are thinking about love and desire, um, suppose you were going to describe what it was like, um, say, to someone from, well, of course, we better make it the planet Venus, don't you think? What would be <laughs> Well, uh, <laughs> I don't know my audience. <laughs> I think I need to ask Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, describe to these Venusians what? Yeah. Um, exactly uh, how you would how you define and experience desire. <laughs> um, hmm. Because <laughs> um, um, hmm. it, it's probably not quite the same for them, you know, given that they have um, seven sexes and uh, their wings um, are also saw blades that can sing. Um, it's probably a little different for them, I guess. <laughs> uh, um, desire, uh, I mean, again, you know, these are all things for me where words fail, because especially English words, you know, English is such a practical business-like language that makes it even harder um, some older languages, you know, like mine, <laughs> are always metaphorical, you know, saying something but always implying much more. And the words kind of like string together to create more words. And they are a little easier to use for this sort of topic. But, I, you know, I, I would say desire is, um, you know, something greater than the self. Um, and, and, you know, something that connects to timelessness, and if we have a sense of the divine, then to that as well. You know, if we have a sense of like awe in nature, to that as well. So for me, the, the way I experience it is I get completely um, sucked in to that, into that greater, you know, energy that's nature or, you know, yeah. yeah, it's interesting that you say timelessness because, um, you know, there can be times um, when you're with um, someone whom you love um, and you can't tell whether um, 20 minutes has passed right. or whether it's been four or five hours yeah. and everything is... Um, um, serene mm -hmm. and um, and exciting at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of those many, many strange um, phenomena of mm -hmm. love. You can't exactly say it's a paradox, it, but it's uh, it's as if um, time is timeless. Mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, when you bring in um, pleasure into that timelessness, then it becomes even more complicated because um, sexual pleasure um, 
has urgent desire, excitation of desire within it. And um, it's heading um, toward the orgasm. But um, the orgasm is not by any means all of it. Um, It's not uh, as if we're sitting in a restaurant with an empty plate before us. And we're just waiting and waiting and waiting for a little bit of food. And then we eat the food and the whole thing is done. It's more like um, we're getting more and more full. um, And um, the progress of our fullness or of our desire approaching orgasm is in of itself part of the pleasure. But what if you actually never got there? Um, would that be pleasure or would it eventually become agony? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's, well, I think it's a state of mind, you know. So let, let's backtrack for, for, for a moment. When you said it feels, uh, you know, uh, like a contradiction, you know, I, I just think it's, it's a, very clearly an intellectual contradiction. So, yes. uh, you know, not natural, but yes, you know, intellectual. Um, and um, I do, I, you know, I totally agree. It's it's where you feel that all is well with the world, which is such a rare feeling, you know, because we're so used to feel anxiety, injustice, that, you know, we've been wronged. <laughs> um, you know, all, all kinds of, like, traumatic feelings uh, and responses to the world. So when all of that kind of like fades away, um, that's that's the that's the sense of being in love, um, of being satisfied. You know, and I think that our culture does not like that because it makes us less uh, you know less prone to like consume less prone to overwork, <laughs> you know, less prone to react to, you know, the, the kind of like uh, temptations of the world, right? So it's bad for the economy, for example. It's bad for nationalism, for example. <laughs> it's yeah, bad for fanaticism of all kinds, yeah. So the culture doesn't really want us to be, you know, like starry-eyed in love with each other. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, because it has a very different um, goal, and and the goal of the culture is the dominion, right? Dominating nature, um, yes. And love is nature, so it defies. Uh, you know, w- when love blooms, and you know, as desire or or even more, it defies the project of culture (laughs) so this is the back and forth um that's true mm -hmm. and of course eurydice love is also submission to the beautiful goddess (laughs) yeah yeah uh it's i guess it's submission yeah it doesn't feel like that to me um you know but yeah i guess it must be more so for um for the male who, you know, has been trained to, I guess, um, go out there and conquer, you know, and, and take. And, and yeah, um, 
you know, this is my theory, my theory of capitalism. This is parentheses, but I think you're going to get kick, a kick out of it. My theory of capitalism is that it's it's the male gaze. Because, <laughs> um, oh. you know, the, like this, you know, capitalism starts with this idea of like, I see something and I want it for my own, right? Like, uh, instead of I see something and I'm, in awe of its of its beauty, you know, like I see a beautiful piece of land or or a gorgeous right. tree or you know um, the, the the beach or so it doesn't have to be just a person, <laughs> right. um, beauty of all kinds, right? And rather than just wanting to enjoy it uh, and 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 feel like you know feel yourself in it as part of it. Um, you know, the male wants to, um, at least the, you know, the patriarchy male, right? I don't, I, I'm not speaking about the natural male. Um, yeah, I'll try and be a good boy. Wants to possess it, right? And, and right. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of like the way uh, our economy, you know, functions. It's like a tree has really no value unless we cut it and make it lumber, right? Unless we, we, we use what's what attracts us, and then that's how we monetize it. Um, but yeah, overall, like so, I, I think like it's the it's the you know almost like the rapist gaze, you know. So like right. the capitalism is like rape culture, you know. It's the gaze of like the colonizer, you know. So in my in my all in the old culture, you know, uh, on Lesbos, we that's what we describe as the evil eye, and we're right. all like taught to you know to recognize it. There are, you know, spells and things that you can do, you know, so if you're affected by it to kind of escape its focus. Um, but again, we, we don't think that the person who has the evil eye um, is is guilty or culpable, which is what I think is so interesting, you know, like... Uh, That's very interesting. Right. My, my, my grandmothers, you know, I mean, my one grandmother believed to her dying day that she lost four children, you know, in the pink of health to the evil eye, right? Um, But, but, and and, uh, when I was a kid, you know, all of the adults felt that I was very um, vulnerable to the evil eye. Um, That, you know, they had like all the theories of like, so-and-so looked at you and you immediately like fell or whatever. Um, (laughs) um, Because I was a little bit like a, you know, changeling. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So... So, they, but but what's interesting is that they would never blame the person. They would say he's possessed by the evil eye. You know, the this greed kind of thing. You know, the the covetous, the covetous eye, like kind of like took someone over without them even knowing it. The, the, you yourself don't know when you have it. <laughs> it's a very right, interesting yeah. system. Well, that's of, interesting because mm-hmm. you think about uh, the story of King Midas and. Ultimately, you do feel sorry for him. You don't think, here is someone who is evil. You just think, here is someone who got possessed by greed, and suddenly it's not working out so well. Yeah, yeah. Which which leads me to the idea of like love is possession, right? Um, the, the idea of, of, you know, you, I love you, therefore, um, you know, you're mine. Um, which I think is impossible. You know, I think that no matter what, we can never really know what's in someone's 
mind, psyche, consciousness at all times. I mean, they, they, they hardly know themselves. And even if they did know, they would hardly be able to translate that. <laughs> That's true. Um, but, you know, I yeah. will say that mm-hmm. it can be very, very sweet um, if um, you and your lover play games of mindness and thineness. You know, if your lover tells you, oh, yeah, now... You belong to me and you're mine. Um, that can be really, really exciting, you know. And mm-hmm. then um, five minutes later, it can be, okay, now you're mine. And then I think um, that sort of um, playing at possession, it can be very mm-hmm. sweet. It's yeah. a way of saying, oh, you know, I'm so attracted to you. I wish I could keep you close to me forever, even though you know that that's not going to happen. It's when you start um, dictating. Okay, now you're mine. Now it doesn't matter how you feel and how I feel. You have to do this and you can't do that. That's when it's really horrible. Yeah, but yeah, it's the expectation, you know, and, and what people take for granted. You know, so like when they take away from their loved one the freedom, of, you know, of choice, um, the freedom to make up, you know, their mind to change again and again and again. That's, I think, where, um, you know, some of the trust gets lost. So I think, like, the more the more you respect each other and allow each other to, to evolve and change, the better the chance to stay together and, and still be, you know, belong to each other, right? Um, yeah, that makes sense to me. It's like re- it's, revision. It's also you know that another is one a of writer. These very strange paradoxes that um, what attracted you in the other person may be something that you are not allowed to keep. Um, that that's going to go away, and then um, you have to find some something else to be attracted to. Hmm. Like what? Well, um, oh, suppose, for instance, that uh, um, one person um, was older than the other. Mm -hmm. And so the younger person uh, went to the older person for for knowledge about Mm -hmm. books or other things like that. And then um, after a while... Um, maybe and maybe that then the the person who wants to give her knowledge is attracted to her because she's so interested, right? Mm-hmm. And then there comes a time when, um, you know, the younger one has grown up and they're more equal, and then suddenly um, she doesn't want to uh, receive; she wants to give, and uh, and that's good and natural and wonderful. But it also means that everything has to change. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of what you were talking about, I think. Yeah, I'm saying, I mean, yeah, that, that, yeah. I'm saying that people change what they like, both sexually um, and, you know, physically and uh, intellectually, you know, politically. We just change, we change all the time. So if uh, if our partner is open to this, one of the most difficult things, you know, for someone who loved you, Eurydice, would be 
um, that person would have to accept the fact that you just keep getting more and more beautiful every second. <laughs> Nothing that he can do about it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, hmm. So what are you That's going your to gift do for, for Valentine's Your Day? gift with words, Bill. You know, um, you were making um, an interesting point, um, talking about um, the separation of sex from procreation, um, why that's been so difficult, and um, it clearly, I think, has um, an economic explanation. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If... Um, if two people could get together and create a child um, easily and pleasurably, and then the child would be born full grown, so requiring no responsibility, um, um, and if everyone had an on-off switch for just plain orgasms versus procreation, I think there would be there would be no problem at all. No one would think anything about it. But because um, having a child uh, is uh, such a tremendous um, um, cost in resources and also, for many people, an investment, you know, for old age, um, then suddenly um, there become all kinds of reasons um, for and against having sex. Um, and I think, um, that unfortunate, um, coupling, um, mm -hmm. yeah. can be very, very detrimental to love. There mm -hmm. can be times when people will say, oh no, I, I can't get married because, um, I can't afford a child mm -hmm. or, um, no, I'll marry you, but I want to have at least six or seven children in case three of them die and we need some to take care of us <laughs> in old age. And then it becomes all about uh, the kids, and then the, the love has to change uh, to match that. Yeah. No, I agree. I've always felt that there's nothing less romantic than children <laughs> and, and yeah. parenting. And that, you know, and, and I think it's... It's unhealthy. I, I personally, I think it's sick. I think it, you know, I think it's a disease, you know, that, but that's me. I think it's a, it's a social disease, the nuclear family, that we force, uh, you know, children to be stuck in this kind of like um, unholy, unholy trinity, you know, of, of the mother and the father with their sexual, psycho, you know, psychosocial and you know, romantic passions at, you know, at full steam. Um, and then you have like innocent children who just need, um, you know, love and care and education and not that exposure. I think that it just causes uh, scars in everyone. And then it hurts their own chances, you know, their own future chances at healthy and happy love lives. So, yeah, in my dream world... kids were they, all raised... In collectives like in kibbutzim um that uh in the long run that would be um a really wonderful thing 
or do you think that um, there would be a significant loss because you wouldn't get to have the um, the intimate um, love uh, with your own child? No, I, yeah, I, I don't think the collective, um, I mean, collective in the sense of like, you know, an extended family, a support system, right? So it's not just one parent, yes, but I don't believe in, uh, in the collective uh, uh, beyond that. I do think that the intimacy, you know, must not, you know, must come before everything and not for the parent so much or, or not for the parent wanting to be taken care of by the child, <laughs> but because right. the child needs to know the, you know, from the newborn needs to know that no matter what, you know, she or he is the priority and no matter what she or right. he will be, um, you know, like looked after, uh, heard, that's what gives us our confidence for the rest of our lives, right? So that's wh why that intimacy is so important. Uh, no, in my dream world, I guess uh, parents would live apart. Mothers and fathers would live separately. Um, and they would, depending on who they each are and what their interests are and how much, you know, time and commitment and so depending really on the on on the people they would agree and negotiate what parenting would each do and where and how but i think they should live apart i don't think that cohabitation is good for the kids um interesting so, yeah um, yeah um probably um not many people think as you do and, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, because the whole agrarian uh, system. Not many people have perfect cohabitation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, the whole, you know, see, the, I think the cohabitation comes from the need to um, domesticate and basically, you know, isolate the woman during her procreant years, right? Uh, right. The woman yeah. with, the, with the bee, <laughs> the womb. And so, um, so yeah, so the, um, the agrarian age, with the beginning of the agrarian age, basically, um, you know, this is the system that, you know, was, was invented. Um, and we have come out of that a while now. I mean, we went through the industrial era, right? Now we're almost in the, in the digital era. And instead of kind of letting go of these, you know, these habits that made sense then, but no longer make sense because you, you, we no longer have to kind of like have a, a physical uh, supervision, <laughs> you know, and control of like the, the procreative function, right, of the machine of making babies, you know, that happens to right. be inside the woman. Um, we no longer have to do that, but we're still keeping up the same system. And because it doesn't work for us, what we're doing, rather than change this dumb system, what we're doing is we're, you know, pulling further and further away from the body as if it's our body's fault, you know, and we're finding refuge in like, you know, the metaverse <laughs> or avatars or like, you know, unsubstantiated existence, <laughs> which is a, you yeah, know, I mean, true. it's a, it's, you know, it's a delusion of, of the moment or the century. But, um, yeah, I think that cohabitation is no longer needed. Um, maybe um, it might be nice, you know, if the people who love each other can um, cohabit in old age. 
Oh yeah, that would um, be nice. Yes, their bodies yes. are starting yes. to fail, yes. and they maybe yes. can help each other a yeah. little bit more. Yeah, it would be interesting to think of yeah. certain things yeah. being encouraged only in old age. Yeah, I, I think the I agree. Aztecs, you know, um, had a death penalty um, for drinking pulque, you know, their form of alcohol until you were mm-hmm. fifty. Mm-hmm. Um, 50, of course, was ancient for them. <laughs> and then when you were 50, you could drink all you wanted. Oh, that's funny. Um, <laughs> and um, there's something kind of appealing about that kind of yeah. economy. Yeah. Even though I would also um, probably try to sneak all the pulque I could when I was 16 or 36 or yeah. whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, my... I'm going to go back for a second, but my, my, my ideal of this is that we cohabit as we want. We move in with anyone we want. We move in, we move out, you know, at any age. It's a specific, to, for me, it's specific for procreation that when, you know, the, the, the pregnant person, you know, decides to keep the child and goes through like the nesting instinct, that nesting is done by, you know, by herself, for her and the child, in a separate abode. I think you're right. That's all. I think that, um, um, you know, a child, a, a, a fetus should be considered, um, you know, an addition to the collective uh, wealth and a, yeah, um, it is. a yeah. drain at the public expense. It shouldn't yeah. be like, yeah. Okay, um, these two people just had a baby, so we have to get child support from the father because the yeah. woman can't do it on her own, and yeah. the woman has to do this and yeah. that. Yeah. It would make so much more sense if yeah. you said, okay, um, here's a new baby, so of course, yeah, a certain amount of uh, gross domestic product mm-hmm. is just going to go for that, and then... Um, mm-hmm. The woman can leave if she's pregnant, and um, yeah. there won't be exactly. any but emotional repercussions. Yeah. And but, but but you don't have to break up. You see, like that's what I'm saying. To me, I don't think that the relationship needs to change. I mean, she can yeah. still go to the father for sex and pleasure and whatever else you know for dates. Like, yeah. I I this is not about relationship. This I'm just saying that the one the you know the place like the theater of the you know the the child's life um i think sh- you know should be apart from the theater of the sex and love and drama and relationship and whatnot and i agree with you 100% i think that, you I think right. that um, um the you know yeah. the, the the collective should the support of the sex life who is going to be the main actress huh <laughs> the main actress of the play yeah well if you're going to the theater, you want to see a performance, right? So there's going to be a lot of eros and agape, and who knows, maybe a little kinky, low-level Thanatos for some s <laughs> Who can say? But it's going to be quite a performance, and oh, I wonder yeah. who you thought the lead actress would be. <laughs> well, I know who you're thinking, Sappho. <laughs> <laughs> We have to have Sappho in the part. <laughs> of course, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, um, 
Well, that's a happy uh, thought. Yeah. Have you written yeah. any erotica? Speaking of writing um, plays about eros. Um, yeah. Well, you know, when I wrote um, The Lesbian, my, uh, my last uh, novel, um, yeah, it could be um, considered erotica, although a lot of people thought it was quite disgusting. For them, it was a turnoff. But everybody's different. Mm. <laughs> yes, everybody's yeah. different. Yeah. Um, and I, I definitely, like, you know, Sex in words is um, is frightening. It's it's you know it's off-putting. It uh, you know because it's it's not natural, and yet you know without trying that um, we can't reconcile right our nature with our culture. So we have to keep trying, but it does it does feel uncomfortable and even a violation. But you know. That's because it violates that kind of like, you know, taboo separ- right. separation between the <laughs> between mind and body. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I wrote a book, um, a little erotica story. Um, it's called Eve's Academy, um, and our one of our common friends, I think, published it uh, under New Urge editions um and yeah the, the the challenge is you know for me um in general writing erotic text is um not you know f- finding the words and the and the tone so that it doesn't become smut um but it also doesn't become sentimental right keeping out like That's the romantic right, yeah. sentimentalism but also uh you know Keeping it um, like lyrical um, and and unexpected, right? Um, That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you really see any smut that gives me an orgasm. I consider great literature. <laughs> well, there's a literary criterion for you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we can wrap it up right there. <laughs> okay. Thank you for okay. coming, Bill. I, I love the conversation. And everybody... Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I always love talking with you about love. What could be better? Yeah. Well, you have to come back. And everybody out there, until next week, keep speaking sex. Could make love incessantly, I would be God.